Hi everyone and welcome back to the In Our Backyard podcast with your host Jen Galler. And this week we're back to continue our conversation with Jay Feldman who is the executive director with Beyond Pesticides. Go back to the previous episode to learn the background of Beyond Pesticides and what they are doing. And now here's the rest of our conversation. Yeah and so could you talk about some of the programs you all have at Beyond Pesticides and the work you're doing? Sure. So our job, we feel, is to stay on top of the science. We're a science-based organization. We like to talk about the work we do in terms of science policy and action. So daily, we track the science as it emerges through our daily news. And then that information, in addition to other information that we research, is put into our different databases. We have something called the Pesticide Gateway, Gateway on Pesticide Hazards and Alternatives. And that really provides an entry point if you've been exposed in your community, you ask the park director, what did you use on that park? Or the public works director, what did you use in front of my house along the right-of-way? You get the product name, the chemical name, and you can actually look that up on our database. We also track the science in terms of studies that trace human adverse effects called the pesticide-induced diseases database. That too can really give people a sense of what the exposure patterns mean. But we really view all this information as tools for change because this is information meant to empower people to engage with decision makers on how to manage land in the community how to manage lunches, school lunches that are brought into our school systems, you know, how to manage households. What are we going to buy at the grocery store? How are we going to manage for pests in our home? How are we going to garden in ways that are healthy? And so very early on in the history of the organization, we got heavily involved in advancing organic land management. We started with organic agriculture, began working with the organic farmers and those advancing organic production. And the Organic Foods Production Act was passed with a lot of advocacy from the farm and environmental community. And that created the USDA certified organic label that you now see in the grocery store. That's the only system of agriculture that is certified and inspected on an annual basis for which we have evaluation of the allowable inputs that are organic compatible, that is in sync with ecosystems in which land is managed or food is grown. And so that label really has to be protected because as you can imagine, as that market grows, many of the people, many of the corporations that have been really focused on chemical intensive land management and agriculture would like a piece of the organic market, but they would like to reduce the rigor with which organic certification is implemented. And so our job in the environmental public health community is to protect and continually improve that label against forces of big food and those who are producing chemicals. Now, from our perspective, the most important thing we can do immediately is to change the practices in our communities. 
And so we have a program called Parks for a Sustainable Future. And that program allows us beyond pesticides to come in and work with your parks department and transition to organic land management in the parks and in the schools. And we have the ability to underwrite that program, bring in a horticulturalist, put to take soil samples, look at current management practices, and put together a plan for organic land management. Now, why why do we focus on organic? Well, organic really is intended to eliminate petrochemicals, pesticides, and fertilizers. So we're eliminating. We're not trying to come up with you know, different levels of acceptable exposure with all the problems we've studied for decades here. We're eliminating those pesticides because they're not necessary to achieve productivity in agriculture. We've proven that now in virtually every commodity crop and every vegetable crop, and certainly not necessary in the management of turf and landscapes in our parks and playing fields and, and schoolyards. So we have a huge program to help transition away from that chemical dependency. The beauty of this program is we believe this is the intersection. It is the intersection of protection of health, which is under threat. If you look at rates of diseases, chemical-induced diseases, they're skyrocketing. I mean, we're seeing cancer rates, all kinds of neurodegenerative diseases, We hear more and more about the gut biome and how important that is to overall health. Mm -hmm. Chemicals attack the gut biome. There's an overall threat to health given chemical dependency in our food production and in our land management in our communities. In addition to that, the UN has identified biodiversity collapse on the horizon. We can't live without biodiversity. Pollinators are responsible for one third of our food production. We cannot live without the balance of nature. We depend on that balance of nature. We're seeing in this country and worldwide an insect apocalypse where the insect populations are plummeting. I mean, we've seen like a 70 to 80% reduction in the last 30 to 40 years in insect populations. That's just not sustainable. And that has a ripple effect including impacts on the bird population, which is also plummeting. Birds eat mosquitoes. Birds are part of the ecosystem balance that is necessary for healthy life. And that goal to create holistic systems of management is not only productive, but it's profitable. There are numerous studies we cite, one coming out of Rodale, the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania that is looking at impacts of the value of organic in agriculture, both in terms of competitive productivity and increased profitability compared to chemical intensive agriculture. There's all kinds of ways that we should be, but are not calculating the real benefits of organic. For instance, when we see a Superfund site or we see you know, the need to clean up for water contamination, or fish kills, or impacts on communities that near production facilities, mortality and morbidity in those communities, we don't calculate those costs to society as part of the cost-benefit calculation that, that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency does in many cases. Even when we do a risk assessment, let's take the benefit out of it. 
and we accept a level of harm, we do not calculate the secondary impacts of that harm, the secondary impacts of something called resistance, insect and weed resistance. Resistance is the phenomenon, the biological phenomenon of organisms developing a resistance to the chemical that is being sprayed. We're seeing that in mosquitoes now. So what does that mean? That means the chemicals we're using to spray pesticides on mosquitoes that carry an insect-borne disease, whether it's West Nile virus or something else, they're no longer working. So are we calculating the cost of that? Just in terms of medical care, we're not calculating the cost. These are called secondary costs of pesticide use, poisoning, contamination. Finally, this question of pesticide reliance and pesticides being a part of a system of land management that relies on pesticides and fertilizers, petrochemical pesticides and fertilizers, we're seeing that whole system contributing to the climate crisis. Fertilizers contribute to nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse, very potent greenhouse gas. Mm-hmm. Petroleum-based pesticides obviously contributes to CO2 and the release of carbon into the environment. And so when we buy a pesticide and when we buy food that's grown with pesticides and fertilizers, that act, that purchase is contributing to the climate crisis. So, you know, we have a responsibility to calculate these costs. This is huge. Fertilizers are a huge portion portion of fossil fuel use. And so we have an opportunity here to immediately shift. And that's why we're calling for the elimination of petrochemical pesticides and fertilizers in the next decade. We can do this. We have the tools to do it. We just have to have the will to do it. The other element here that is really fascinating and is hopeful, gives us a way out of this debilitating situation we're in with these you know, crises that are exceeding planetary limits. We will draw down atmospheric carbon with organic practices. We will literally, by building the microbial activity in the soil, and the microorganisms, which are in conventional systems, a chemical intensive system, are totally ignored. We go out to sites and test soil, totally ignored, inactive bacteria, inactive fungal, these are beneficial bacteria and fungal organisms, totally ignored and inactive, and therefore not contributing to alleviating the climate crisis. We can draw down atmospheric carbon when we manage our land in, organic systems. The beauty of organic systems is that we have a process for defining it, inspecting it, certifying it, and enforcing it in compliance with a participatory process. The There's a National Organic Standards Board. I served on that board for five years under the Obama administration, which evaluates the standards and the allowable materials in organic production. And that process is totally open to the public. We have two day, two weeks a year in which the decisions of that board are subject to the scrutiny, public scrutiny. There's a public input process. We've got to get public health advocates, community health advocates, consumers, scientists, much more engaged in that process because it is the solution to the existential crises of health, biodiversity, and climate 
that we're facing. Yeah. And I was going to ask, are there alternatives and how would we implement them and make them commonplace? So we kind of answered that with the organics and all of those. So what would a pesticide-free world look like? You know, it, it really wouldn't look much different in terms of our quality of life. I think our quality of life would actually improve because of illnesses associated with commonplace chemical pesticide exposures on a daily basis either through diet or through non-dietary exposure in our communities. So if anything, our quality of life would improve. We, you know, our productivity would not suffer in terms of agricultural productivity. If we do a full cost accounting of all the impacts, immediate and secondary impacts to the economy, we would see a net reduction in costs associated with food production, we'd see less contamination, less contamination cleanups, which are extremely costly. If we can really make this transition to organic worldwide, we would see reduction in all the things we're seeing on the nightly news, the fires, the flooding. We really have an opportunity to reverse what clearly existential crises. And, you know, this is not a question of keeping everything going as 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 we are and you know trying to figure out ways to store carbon or to capture carbon and put it in the ground we don't need to produce this these petroleum based products in the first place we need to move our energy systems away from fossil fuels and all the offshoot industries like the chemical industry that relies on fossil fuels and really, we have a, an incredible opportunity to be cross-cutting in how we attack this problem. But we have to begin to understand that our decisions on how we produce food and how we manage land is directly tied to the existential crises that we're facing. Once we recognize that and make this transition, we will see improvements across the board to the economy, to the health and the long-term sustainability of life. Yeah, definitely. And how did you get into this work? Well, you know, I I actually originally started looking at occupational health and safety by going into the coal fields of Southern West Virginia mm -hmm. and talking to coal miners and the UMW, the, the United Mine Workers of America, UMWA, and really trying to figure out how we could leverage the public health community, because in those days we had clinics throughout Appalachia and coal mining areas, some of which were funded by the union, others funded by the public health service. And it was one of those situations in which the clinicians could see right up close and personal the relationship between an occupational exposure to coal dust and black lung disease. And my interest in all of this was how to engage the medical community to identify the changes that needed to take place to protect the workers. So I took that background and began working with farm workers in the US, same exact situation. Clinics, clinicians seeing farm worker poisonings in the field, 
They came into migrant health and public health clinics. They were diagnosed as pesticide poisoning. Where did that information go? Did it go into the regulatory process and the registration process to protect workers? No. We identified that there was one half page in the Code of Federal Regulations that protected workers, farm workers in the field. Farm workers shall not enter the fields until the dust have settled and the pesticides have dried. And that was the extent of worker protection. Farm workers were not and are still not protected under the Department of Labor and under the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, except for anhydrous ammonia and ladders, but all chemical exposures for workers in the fields are under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. One half page in the Code of Federal Regulations to protect workers who are exposed day in and day out to pesticide known toxic chemicals. I began working for an organization called Rural America, and we, at that time with EPA actually, began going out and collecting data on these exposures and brought that back and put a proposal together for a worker protection standard that EPA now has for limiting re-entry into the field, worker protection. I should mention that at the time this was all going on, uh, the state of California already had increased protection for workers. So there was somewhat of a model out there. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't as comprehensive as it needed to be, but there were more re-entry standards, meaning when is it uh, acceptable to come back into the workplace being the farm based on a scientific analysis of the residuals in that field to which the workers would be exposed. But for us, it was more than that. It was access to hand-washing facilities. It was protection of the workers and you know, enforcement of label restrictions that were elevated in providing you know, some type of enforceable standard. Now, again, these standards have are very difficult to enforce. Asking farm workers to wear PPE, protective, personal protective equipment, in very hot climatic conditions is unrealistic. Farm workers ultimately eat in the field in a poisoned environment. If they do get a lunch break, when they get a lunch break, hopefully. Children that don't have access to daycare are sitting. I've seen this on the sides of fields as their parents work. They're getting exposed. They're drinking out of irrigation ditches. The scenario in terms of farm worker exposure is still not adequately protective. And it's very difficult for a worker to exercise rights. Let's say a product is being misused or they, they're not enforcing a proper reentry standard or whatever. Very difficult, if not impossible, for a worker to exercise rights around that. But remember, our organization does not believe and has the data to show that those label restrictions that protect consumers and especially farm workers are not adequately protective in the first place. The mere fact that we're not testing for endocrine disruptors and farm workers are the first in line of exposure means that they are first to be harmed, their babies are first to be harmed, their miscarriages are elevated. You know, the chronic effects later in life are elevated. Their life 
expectancy is depressed. And so label compliance is not good enough because of the all the inadequacies of the regulatory process process that governs those labels. So that's, again, that's why we work on organic. Farm workers are the first to be protected in organic systems, right? Because we've taken the toxic chemicals out of the workplace, and then we can focus on other social needs that farm workers deserve, access to healthcare, access to daycare, access to an adequate uh, livable wage. So we've got to get the workplace to be safe. All those other things become meaningless if you're killed as a result of your workplace exposures. So let's let's make the workplace safe for farm workers with organic systems. We can do that. So, you know, I segued all this on-the-ground experience from doing and organizing a series of field hearings in agricultural areas in Texas and Florida and California. Heard from workers. We had workers present their life experience to the different levels of regulators, state regulators, federal regulators, and explain what they were experiencing in the fields. They did this under very threatening conditions when we put this report together, which led to the adoption of the Farm Market Protection Standard, because again, in this context, they were their jobs were threatened. You speak to those federal and state regulators today, don't bother coming to work tomorrow. And so farm workers really have to put their had to put their jobs and still do and their, their livelihoods and, and their families on the line when they speak up in these conditions. And and that, you know, that's an inequity that really we really need to correct. That's why the union movement is so critical. And, the you know, the work that many of the union leaders, starting with Cesar Chavez, but many others that have now taken up the cause at the Florida Farm Worker Association, great example of another union and Baltimore Velasquez and the Farm Labor Organizing Committee out of Ohio. These are leaders, the leader of the Florida Farm Worker Association, Tirso Moreno, now uh, retired. But these types of leaders have come up through the farm worker community, seen the injustice and have really advocated for the kinds of transition that that we really need to protect workers. So you realize pretty quickly as you work on these issues that you can spend a whole career playing whack-a-mole with individual chemicals. I mean, look, Rachel Carson wrote about DDT in 1962 in Silent Spring. And look at all the chemicals we've been fighting since DDT. We've we fought all the organochlorines, which chlorodane, aldrin, dieldrin, endrin, for another decade after that. We then began fighting chlorpyrifos and organophosphate and all the organophosphates for another two decades after that. We are now fighting synthetic pyrethroids. We fight the neonicotinoid pesticides that have been associated with pollinator decline and also associated with adverse health effects. You know, you can you can keep beating on these individual chemicals. We decided to step back from that, widen the lens and say, wait a minute, we need to get off this treadmill. And you know what? We can get off this treadmill. We are showing you in virtually every crop that we do not need these toxic chemicals to achieve our pest management goals, maintain productivity and profitability in the agricultural sector and manage our landscapes to community expectations. 
the solution is within our reach. We have the ability to do it and we can work at all levels together, whether we're working from a labor perspective, whether we're working from an environmental and ecosystem perspective, whether we're working from a public health perspective, whether an elected official, whether a parent of a child, whether working with the PTA, whether talking with the parks department in the community, we all have a role to play and we can affect this change and we can we can eliminate petrochemical pesticides and fertilizers in the next decade. That's awesome. I love that and such important work and really interesting. Finishing out, is there anything we missed that you think is important to talk about or cover? I think we have to get ourselves out of silos and thinking that I work on water, I work Mm -hmm. on air, I work on occupational exposure and recognize that all these issues are very cross-cutting and figure out the connections between all the different groups and the existential crises because they all are related. And you can see in our mind, it comes down to the reliance on petrochemical pesticides and fertilizers, petrochemical pesticides and fertilizers. So, you know, we have an opportunity to connect these issues, clean up our waterways, protect our ecosystem, protect fence line communities where hazardous chemicals are being produced, protect the workers who are producing these chemicals and working in the fields where these chemicals are widely used. And then, you know, protect the ecosystem, which is critical to sustaining life. And in so doing, in doing all this, we will solve the climate crisis. But we got to get busy really fast, really fast. This is urgent. Tweaking existing regulatory systems will no longer work. I've, I've been doing that. 40 years, right? I've I've been working to try to reform the regulatory system, the, the laws in place. That will no longer work given the time horizon that we have to solve these problems. And until we as a community all come together and say, this is urgent, current laws cannot be fixed because the underlying assumption in those laws, the underlying assumption in setting standards of harm, they call them safety standards, in setting standards of allowable harm, all of those standards assume one thing that's wrong, that we need these materials, these toxic materials for our sustenance, for our quality of life, and for our economic health. And that is the wrong assumption brought to all these laws. So we we have an opportunity now to say we have to cut through all that. We have to look at what is needed and what is not needed, given the availability of these alternatives. We have to invest in these alternatives, just like we're doing with some of the green energy stuff. We've got to do that across the board with toxic chemicals and pesticides and fertilizers and get busy right now <laughs> uh, <laughs> to bring everybody together and solve solve this problem in the next decade. That's all we got. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, totally agree. We need to get on it. So just my last question is, how can people contact or connect with you if they have questions or, you know, just get in touch? Yeah, well, we're Beyond Pesticides at beyondpesticides.org. Get on our website. And, you know, we're a totally transparent organization. Everything we have virtually is on our website. Background science, 
independent peer-reviewed literature in science, policies that work and don't work, models for local communities, model policies, and you know what the alternatives really mean. You know what it what it looks like to make this transition in an expedited way to meet the urgency of the moment. So beyondpesticides.org is the place to begin. If you go down and scroll down to resources, the page will come up under our program information page will come up and you can get a quick, easy sort of map of all the different components of our website. And again, if you have a, an issue that, or even if you want us to help you walk through the website and get to where you need to go, call us at 202-543-5450. That's 202-543-5450. Thank you so much to Jay for speaking with me. To contact and connect with him will be linked in the show notes below, along with any other information that we talked about. Tune in in two weeks for a new episode. Thanks, everyone.